This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. I am excited. We are back for part two of our episode on Jaws. Mm Back in this theme of Jaws and Jurassic, Steven Spielberg, summer blockbusters. Yes, I like this theme. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so about Jaws, to kind of yes. get us back into it, I was wondering, Yes, it's a scary movie. Yes, it is. It is a suspenseful, scary movie. What do you think was the scariest part? Okay. I have kind of an unconventional answer oh. for this. I think the thing that I heard was the scariest, the biggest jump scare was when that person's head yes. popped out of the boat. Agree. And because I knew that was coming, I wasn't as scared. But I imagine when I saw it the first time, I would have been scared of that. Okay. So my answer from re-watching it is this. The scene on the beach where Brody is watching the people and he's the only one that knows that shark is out there and everybody is playing and they're having a great time and they're all jumping around and he looks in the suspense and he's wondering, he's scanning the crowd. And yeah. I was like, Oh, is this the part where the little boy gets eaten? Because I couldn't quite remember. Right, right. So I thought, Oh yeah, that's the little boy. And does he get, and then the the dog that disappears, all of that was so suspenseful to yes. me that I think that was the scariest part. And that's so masterful in that we as the audience know something's wrong, but everybody else doesn't. Only mm-hmm. us and Brody know what's going on. And we're in that same quote unquote boat with him is when's the attack going to happen? Ah, oh, that's such a good answer. You know, and I love the point you made. Again, we talked about this in our last episode, Steven Spielberg's mastery in the yes. way he can manipulate your viewer response yes, and yes, your reactions yes. because he made us feel that helplessness, you know, to be the only person in this massive crowd of people who understands the horror that is coming. Yes. And, and what are you going to do about it? Right. And the one shot, which according to Inside Jaws, which we spoke about in part one, and we will speak about again, the, the podcast by Mark Ramsey, I believe that Steven Spielberg really admired Alfred Hitchcock. He did. Actually, that came up. Yeah. And I admire both of them. So, but I am nowhere near them. But one thing I thought was cool is Steven Spielberg does a Hitchcock shot from Psycho. I believe it's in Psycho and you guys can check me if I'm wrong. On the stairs, he did this new kind of innovative shot where you zoom in the camera at the same time that you pull it out. I Mm. forget how to describe it, but it's on the beach. When Brody sits up, it zooms in on him at the same time it's pulling out. It's got this shot like, oh, he realizes what's happening. And I thought, I still have goosebumps. Bumps. It just gave me goosebumps everywhere. I just loved that pulling in. Like mm-hmm. it's happening. It's in, mm-hmm. we're in the moment. Okay, here we go. It's happening. 
And just to follow that down just one more level, what this conversation is making me think about is how he really wanted us to to pull into and to empathize with Brody's perspective. Yeah. Chief Brody really was clearly the protagonist. I mean, you had three leads. Yeah. There are three important men mm-hmm. who are very much sharing ensemble-like the plot of this movie. But I feel that as a director, Steven Spielberg clearly wants us to most closely empathize with Brody because he's the one who is, he's got the moral dilemma. He's the one who overcomes his fear to get in the water. To get in the water. How cool is that? You've got this guy on the beach who's afraid of the water and we never really find out why. Right. Never really find out why. And I made a note when we were watching it, it only takes nine minutes and 10 seconds for danger to enter our hero's world. Wow. Well, now we know the attack happened, Uh but Brody does not know about what happened to the girl nine minutes that's it I mean that's fast that is fast yeah but that's what you do as a writer or as a director you know you want to get to the action and the story as quickly as you can Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I love that well what a great way to start that was fun so last time when we talked we were focused on the problems that they had to overcome with the filming and we talked about how they had those technical challenges those filming challenges that was one issue we talked about how it was a little problematic with the casting not only finding the right actors, but then also the dynamics between Mm -hmm. some of them, especially Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss. And this time we are going to dig into the issue of the script. We're going to dive in. We're going to dive into (laughs) this problem with the script, which is actually, I thought the most fascinating part. Okay. I love this. So here's what happened just to give this perspective. They were only about three weeks before their production was supposed to start Martha's Vineyard and Steven Spielberg was still not happy with the script. Mm -mm. So here he is, this young director, about Mm -hmm. 26 years old, who has taken on this incredible challenge and he doesn't like the script. Like he's still casting. He doesn't have his cast yet, but he doesn't like the script. Yeah, They had given it to Peter Benchley first. They gave him first shot at it because he was- Which makes sense. Obviously, he was the the novelist, but it, it didn't satisfy them. And honestly, as we've said before, the novel ends up being very different from the movie. Some people would say there are some problems with a novel, really? some things that people don't love. One thing I should mention is that Peter Benchley actually was inspired to write this based on some experiences he had as a boy, because apparently he grew up on Nantucket, south of Cape Cod, and he once read about the appearance off Long Island of this 4,550 pound great white shark. That happened in and, real life. In real mm-hmm. life. And it stuck with him. Yeah. And that's what ended up turning into, you know, this fictional novel that he wrote. Yeah. But when his screenplay didn't really please Steven Spielberg, even after he wrote three drafts of it, oh, gosh. Steven Spielberg tried a few other people. One man, honestly, I didn't even catch his name because not a lot happened there. Steven Spielberg still wasn't happy with with it. So then it went to a man named Howard Sackler. Howard still did not get it to the place where Stephen was ready to, to film it, but Howard Sackler did something really cool. What did he do? He's the guy who brought in the USS Indianapolis ah, shark attack story. Okay. I found this fascinating. Yeah. So I, I looked this up. Here's a bit of a history. So this tragedy occurred just after this ship, the USS Indianapolis, had completed a high-speed class 
classified trip taking parts of the atomic bomb to the Pacific Island of Tinian for the U.S. Air Force. This is the bomb that ends up being dropped on Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. So they were taking these parts. Because it was so classified, like nobody knew about it. Mm-hmm. So when Quint says in his little monologue that they didn't even you know, report that their ship was missing for quite some time, it, that was true because mm-hmm. this was highly classified. So after they had delivered those parts, their warship was sunk by a Japanese submarine in the early hours of July 30th, 1945. So according to the source that I looked at, there were almost 1,200 sailors and marines on the ship. Mm-hmm. When they were sunk, 300 died. 300 went down with the ship. Okay. So the rest of them went into the water. Okay. After four days in the ocean, only 316 were rescued. Mm. It was the greatest loss of life at sea from a single ship in the U.S. Navy's history. Now, a lot of them died from dehydration, exposure, mm-hmm. saltwater poisoning. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of oil in the water, a lot of petrol. So there were uh, there were a lot of factors, but shark attack was one of the other causes of death. In fact, they do believe it was the deadliest attack by this predator that is known. So it was actually a torpedo that took them down, and it said, the ship sank in only 12 minutes. They were seeping blood into the mm-hmm. ocean, all the different people who were injured or died. And the ones who were bleeding or in those areas were the first they thought that were attacked by the sharks. They said it was the white tip shark that took many of them. One man who survived told a reporter for the Times Herald back in 2014 how he had looked down under the waves and he would see dozens of sharks, mm. quote, just swarming around us. Mm. So they started with the dead and the wounded. And then after the sharks had kind of made their way through them, mm-hmm. as the days progressed, they began to attack the living crewmen who mm. were in the water. They are not sure exactly how many were actually eaten by sharks because, again, there were all these other factors that were causing the deaths. But they think it could have been anywhere from 20 or 30 up to 150 of them who died that way. Mm. Yeah. So Howard Sackler, the scriptwriter, was given credit for bringing in this story because he was like, how, why would Quint be so obsessed with getting this shark? He felt like this was a gap. And it was a gap in the novel. Like mm-hmm. even when you read apparently Peter Benchley's version, you, you don't still you don't understand that. And so he saw a need. He wanted some backstory and he found out about this true incident that had occurred. And he decided that would help explain why Quint was so obsessed with mm-hmm. sharks, why he hated them so much. He decided that he would give this backstory to Quint that he had survived mm-hmm. this attack. And just think about it. That in when this came out in 1975, that was only 30 years after the real incident had happened. So that would sort of be like if uh, a modern film, not quite 30 years, but if a modern film had someone who was the the Twin Towers, you Mm -hmm. know, in 2001, that that's not that long ago for us. It would not have been that long ago for the 1975 audience. And I'm going to jump ahead and say that's one of the reasons why one thing that I was kind of disappointed in is when Quint dies, he just dies. Mm -hmm. He's not heroic. It doesn't feel full circle. He doesn't go down fighting this shark he just gets eaten you know i do but you know i felt like that was a statement i you felt think so? i do i think i think it was because 
Quint let his obsession overtake him, uh. he wasn't as heroic or as noble, I think, as, say, Chief Brody was. Mm-hmm. He started making some really bad decisions. Yeah, he did. He was so obsessed with that shark that, you know, he destroyed the, the, ship. the ship's radio. He destroyed the ship. I mean, yeah. he led to that their downfall. Yeah, he did. I just felt like, oh, and he survived it the first time, but he still, I guess, maybe another thing, he was destined to be... He needed know. that dramatic irony mm-hmm. to die that way. He escaped it the first mm-hmm. time, but he ended up dying mm-hmm. from a shark attack. You know, I love your point about the fact that it was really pretty recent. And if you had people watching Jaws in 1975 who had knowledge of or even, you know, personal memory, friends or, or someone they knew who was associated with that U.S. Indianapolis tragedy, mm-hmm. you know, that would make it very personal. But on the flip side, sharks are such a prevalent part of our lives now. But back in 1975, they were not. No. And just think if some of the family came to see this that had had family that had, if there was that many men that died in there, you would possibly have people that were like, yes, mm-hmm. this is really what happened. And yeah. they could have identified with it there. For sure. But I think the vast majority of people oh, yeah. Vast had majority. no knowledge mm-hmm. of any mm-hmm. of this. So the shock, you know, hearing that story, mm-hmm. I mean, this was very new and novel. I think I, I think it's just reminding me of, you know, we've got everything from Sharknado now to yeah. all, you know, it's it's everywhere, right? Yeah. We have we have shark weeks on, yeah. on Discovery. You know, Discovery channels. But back then, this was not something that was huge and something prevalent. And so to hear stories like this told by Quint, to have a movie about a shark like this, it was just something that was so new and horrific. And that's why it's hard to repeat it. Yeah. That's why it's hard to repeat the success of something like this because you can never be new and novel again. Right. The first Jurassic Park, you can't repeat that. Right. Because that's the first one. That's such a good point. Well, to finish this out, Howard Sackler, (laughs) according to Carl Gottlieb, the the screenwriter, actually plagiarized just a little bit. He apparently pulled some of the wording directly from some other source that had talked about the USS Indianapolis but he was given credit for being the person who put this into the script, but it wasn't ready to go. This speech ended up being pretty long and Steven knew he liked it. Steven Spielberg, he wanted to keep it, but he didn't quite know what to do with it. Yeah. So he sent it to some of his friends, including George Lucas, getting opinions. What do I do with this thing? And so Ian Shaw, Robert's son, and other sources as well. So this is a corroborated across different sources. They give Robert Shaw I think credit. this is so cool. Yes. They give him credit for being the one who really pulled it all together. He took the notes. He took the feedback. He took this original speech that had been written by Howard Sackler and he went home, he reworked it, and then he came over to wherever Stephen was staying and I believe Carl Gottlieb was there as well and he he's basically like hey, I put this together and you know, see what you think and performed it for mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and that was the version that made it into the film. And if you did not hear part one yet, the reason that's, you know, you would think, oh, an actor just did that no he was a playwright and he was a novelist he knew what he was doing yes he did and just to kind of tie the bow and wrap this up when he did go to perform that on the day of filming he was drunk Mm -hmm. we talked last time about his issue with drinking he was drunk and basically ruined the entire day's shoot Mm -hmm. they could use very little of it Mm -hmm. 
He felt bad. He was professional enough that he realized he had wasted time, cost them money. He he just knew that this was a bad thing to do. So he came back sober. I believe it was the very next day and nailed it. I think in one take. And it was the version that's in the film. They said they pulled maybe a few shots here and there mm-hmm. from day one, but pretty much everything that made it into the movie is from that second day of filming. And many, many different sources talk about this monologue by Quint as being one of the best performances in yes. film history. Yes, like, it's amazing. Yeah, very powerful. And when I watched it again recently, especially I was listening for it, I was mm-hmm. looking for it, and I was struck by, was by how good it was. I was trying to decide if I could figure out what was day one and what was day too. I, I did the same thing. <laughs> I was like, are his eyes a little more glassy in this scene? <laughs> okay. Well, let's move back now. So we gave credit to Howard Sackler for adding that USS Indianapolis scene. And we kind of followed that out. But basically, that's the last thing that that we kind of give credit to Howard Sackler because the script is still not where Steven Spielberg wants it. So he turns to his friend, Carl Gottlieb. Carl was an actor who also, of course, was an accomplished writer. He was on the writing staff. I mean, he'd done many other things, but one of the notable things was that he was on the writing staff along with Steve Martin of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour on CBS. Mm -hmm. And he wrote for a lot of other very important shows of that time, including The Odd Couple. So he and Stephen crossed paths a lot of times because they shared the same agent and they had become friends. Stephen had even cast Carl in some of his TV projects, some small roles here and there in different movies or different things. And he actually had already asked Carl to play the newspaper editor, Ben Meadows in Jaws. Yeah. So Carl was already associated. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he was already associated with the project. He was familiar. And then Stephen reached out to him. He sent him a copy of the script with the the word eviscerate is written across the title page. So Carl wrote back. He said this is what he always did. He basically had this really long memo where he outlined everything he thought needed to be done to revise and make this script good. Okay. And he said that, you know, there were two purposes for that. First of all, that would allow Stephen and his production team to decide if they liked, you know, Carl's before he direction. Does the work. Yeah, before mm. he does the work. But it's also now kind of a record. Mm. Now he knows if he takes on this project, here's what I need to do. I I like that. That's yeah. a good idea. So Stephen showed the memo to the other members of the team. They met with Carl. They decided to bring him on. He had no idea what he was getting into. Mm, that's <laughs> always the way it starts. We never know what we were getting into. So it said that within days, Carl was on a plane to Boston with Spielberg, who again, he is still casting the locals at this time. They have not finished casting. They're three weeks out. Mm. Now, you to put this in perspective, they don't have their entire cast. They have an incomplete script and their mechanical shark is not working. What is this? One of my movies? <laughs> <laughs> so so Carl said the shark was problematic mm. because it ends up, as I think we, we hinted at this, but we didn't really get into it in part one, these mechanical problems with the sharks ended up causing huge script issues oh. because if they were going to film and they did not have a working shark, they had to figure out what to do. Okay. This changed plot lines. This changed a day's script. So what ended up happening, you've already alluded to this, actually, to kind of look at it from a broader perspective. In general, because of these shark problems, they realized they had to approach the use of the mechanical sharks in a different way. Rather than showing the shark all the time, this is where they called on what they had learned from kind of the old sci-fi horror films, especially 
one that they love from 1951 called The Thing from Another World. And in that particular movie, the writers and producers would cause suspense without showing the creature. That's really smart. They purposefully held off showing the creature in that movie until the very end. So they decided to model a little bit after what they had learned from that old movie. Carl said, quote, we can intimate the shark. We can show terrible things that the shark does and that will build suspense. Mm -hmm. We concentrated on showing the effects of the shark when we didn't have the shark. It was even that much more impressive when he finally appeared. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that was one of the things I noticed that you were looking at timestamps. I did the same thing. Last time I rewatched it, it was not until 62 minutes basically into the movie before we saw the shark for the first time. Wow. When they actually used one of those mechanical bruises. (laughs) Yeah. And I think I remember reading an article where it was for Jurassic Park. It was 45 minutes before you saw like the first danger from a dinosaur. Ah, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The master of suspense. Yep. So something else that Carl did as the screenwriter was he cut some of the subplots that were in the novel. For example, the novel had a love affair between Chief Brody's wife and Matt Hooper. Ew, I know. no. <laughs> I like the imagine? big friends. No. And they said one of the reasons was, again, they had Jan Michael Vincent uh. in mind back when Harold Sackler had the script, mm-hmm. and Howard Sackler, excuse me. And so in their mind, it would have fit better, mm-hmm. but with a different actor, thinking about their cast yeah. made them rethink some of their I'm plot I'm not even lines. thinking of that. I'm thinking of, I like how good of friends that Brody and Hooper were. Yes. And they wouldn't have been that good of friends. No, they would have hated each other. Yes. And another point was, here's the quote from Carl. When we saw Lorraine, Gary, Dreyfus, and Scheider interacting, these were three lovely people. Mm-hmm. We said, we're not going to show her cuckolding Brody with this dweeb. (laughs) So like they realized they wanted Brody to be a stronger character. Yeah. They didn't want the infidelity, the betrayal. And and as you said, they didn't want to mess up the interactions between the three of them. They have enough to worry about. Yeah. So that was a huge change that Gottlieb made. He he literally changed some some of the characters, some of the plot. Another thing that he was given credit for was adding some of the quirky humor that we Mm. now see in the movie. And especially for bringing more depth to the characters. Mm -hmm. This is what we said in part one. He made them more like everybody instead of caricatures. That was his actual quote. He said he was proud of making them more like everybody instead of caricatures. And I know Mm -hmm. we talked quite a bit last time about humanizing and making these characters real. I like even in one of the opening when he goes to get all the paint at the store, he knocks over the paintbrushes. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, that's something I would do if I was nervous. You just, it's just little bitty things like that. What about in terms of the humor? I'm thinking of that scene where... They compare scars. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Some of that was improvised by the actor. Oh, I love it. I love how How they're, and that looks how it's so good to see Shaw and, and uh, Richard Dreyfuss actually getting along. And then I love how they're comparing their big manly scars. And then you see Brody just like lift (laughs) up his shirt and he's got a little like appendix scar and he never says anything about it. He's just like, I don't have anything. I thought that was adorable. Yes. Yes. I was thinking of another part, which was when Brody was looking out the window in his home, which by the way, what about that view? Right. But he sees his son in the boat and he's yelling at him to get out and the wife is like the voice of reason and the mm-hmm. voice of calm and she's like honey no you know he's fine blah 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 
and calms Brody down. And then she looks down at the book and sees the picture of, of the, the shark. shark that can like attack the boat and get out know, of the boat. <laughs> and she screams at her kid to get out. It was so good. But yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know that that specifically was an addition by Carl, but I think that's the kind of touch that he added to it. I got one other thing for you. Oh, yeah. Another, I wonder if if this was improvised or I wonder if this is Carl's humanizing touches. I love the interaction between Brody and his son where they're at the dinner table and they're mirroring each other Mm. and he's being so sweet with him and he goes, give me a kiss. Why? Because I need it. You know, it's just, that was so sweet. I loved seeing Mm -hmm. him as a father because then when he's panicked about his kids, you can see that he has a connection with his kids because sometimes the people in these films, the kids are just this afterthought, but you can tell he really cares about his kids. Yeah. And I love that point because if you were to time it, think about how little time we actually see Brody with his family versus how much time we see him on an ocean or with these men. So I think that was right. It was another purposeful thing. I think Mm -hmm. on Spielberg's part, he had to find a way to show us how deeply he cared about his son and his family Mm -hmm. in order for us as viewers to believe that this man who's terrified of water would go get on the ocean and go fight this. Basically it's a villain. I mean, it is a shark, but they've, they've villainized it. It's Mm -hmm. almost, a little human mm-hmm. or or personified, I guess I should say. And he didn't want to do it until he got personal when mm-hmm. his son was almost attacked. Yeah. You know, and the, and also the mayor. And the mayor says, my son was out there too, mm-hmm. or my children were out there too. Yep. Yes. Oh, I love all these purposeful moves that, you know, we can see the, the thinking behind them. So back to Carl. This was something I loved. In his interview with Inside Jaws, the podcast. That we love. That we love. He talked about how he would literally change the dialogue to reflect the characters because he got to watch them every day or not every day but a lot of times he He was was on set he was with them he saw how they interacted he knew how the characters talked to each other how the actors talked and so he would he would either write it with them in mind or revise it with them in mind so for example he said that watching Brody and his wife those actors how they talk to each other he would picture that as he would write some banter for them Mm -hmm. or the way that Dreyfus and, and Quint would be talking to each other. But I thought the most impressive thing was that Carl had to basically pivot on a dime and adjust things almost on a daily basis. I'm super impressed with him. I, it, it's, I can't imagine the stress. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we talked about Steven Spielberg needing celery to be able to sleep and how he I don't so think much Carl anxiety. was sleeping. Right. <laughs> I don't because think Carl was. He would be going home and writing what was going to be filmed the next day. And then he would think he had like a direction and then they would suddenly be like, oh, sorry. Shark's not working. Can you change this? And I don't know if we pointed this out, but he was, according to the podcast Inside Jaws, he was living with Spielberg yeah. during this time. So he's just across the hall and mm-hmm. he gets immediate feedback. Like, nope, that's not going to work. Right. Oh, I thought this was a really great example just to show what life would be like for this man. So this is just one example. In the scene where Hooper is supposed to go underwater in that shark cage, because remember he was supposed to be trying to like put some kind of chemical or, or medicine mm-hmm. into the shark by kind of stabbing it into his skin. Mm-hmm. Well, they were trying to make it authentic. Mm-hmm. And so they had a second unit of people shooting footage of real sharks in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so to make, and by the way, to make the sharks seem bigger, the filmmakers used a shrunken shark cage and they had a Hooper stunt double played by a four foot nine ex jockey wearing a wetsuit. And, and this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. So keep going your story and I'll say the line. Oh, okay. It's so funny. Okay. So they said in the original script, just as in the novel, Hooper's supposed to be killed there. No way. Yeah. He's supposed to die. Oh, no. The shark bites through the cage, 
he's supposed to die. Oh, no. But the Australia crew had captured this amazing footage that showed a great white attacking an empty shark cage, and Spielberg wanted to use it. So they rewrote the scene. They made Carl rewrite it to let Hooper escape just because they wanted to use that footage. <laughs> Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus, got to live and make it to the end of the movie. That's great. That's the kind of thing where they're just like suddenly like, hey, Carl, he's not going to die. And now he's finishing the movie. Write him in, please. Oh, that's funny. So in the podcast, Podcast, and I, I don't mean to mock this poor man's fear, but the jockey guy, apparently when he was in it, like the, the shark really, I forget the, the specifics, but as he's getting ready to step into the water, the real shark like attacks. And if he had stepped in, it would have literally eaten oh my this gosh, fella. That's terrifying. So they said he just very quietly went into the down, into the boat and he closed the door behind him. They go up there like, hey, I forget his name. Hey, buddy, you coming out? And he's like, I'm not coming out. <laughs> it's just very quietly. <laughs> I'm not coming out. I think I would do the same thing. It's just like, I was almost, I was this close to being eaten by a shark. No. No, no thanks. So that's also Done. maybe why Hooper got to live because the guy said, I'm not, I'm not coming out. I cannot imagine. I oh, okay. Well, we've made it through all three of our challenges with the filming of Jaws now, actually. Before we talk about some of the successes and more reactions to the movie, why don't we take a quick break? Let's do it. Hey, everybody. Are you liking the tea we're serving? If you do, why don't you head over to Apple Podcasts or some other podcatcher of your choice and leave us a rating and review. You know what it does? It helps us be able to serve you some more hot steaming tea. Thanks, guys. So we've spent quite a bit of time talking about the challenges, but now let's talk about some of the successes. Oh, yeah. Time and time again, we hear Jaws referred to as the first ever summer blockbuster, and that title is official. I did not know this, but if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records, it is listed there. Steven Spielberg's Jaws is considered, according to Guinness, as the first summer blockbuster. Some of the reasons were not only did people line up around the block to see the movie, but it was the first first film to ever earn $100 million at the box office. And in fact, it remained on top for two years until Star Wars Mm -hmm. was the one who dethroned it in Mm -hmm. 1977. In fact, have you seen this? Spielberg took Took out that ad, which is so cute. It has the picture of R2-D2 holding this fishing pole with Jaws Jaws caught on it. We'll put that on our Facebook and Instagram pages. But it opened on June 20th, 1975 and was an immediate hit. It won 14 straight weekends at the box office. Something interesting was that they marketed it in a different way. They said before Jaws, most of the time studios would open their pictures gradually. They would Mm -hmm. kind of start with major cities and then they would branch out to the suburbs and then the rural areas. And it was kind of like this word of mouth, kind of hoping it would spread. Kind of like a wave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But in this case, Universal exec Lou Wasserman was given credit for being the one to start this technique where they kind of saturated the airwaves. They did all this advertising and, and all these promos and then they let it open across the country simultaneously, they said, which helped to bypass critics in case it was not, you know, received received super well. So Jaws opened in more than 400 theaters, which was an incredible amount of theaters at that time. And they said that the reaction was instantaneous. Some of the people who worked on the show, including Steven Spielberg, would go into theater sometime just to like watch the reactions and the jumps and the screams. It was probably so validating for them, knowing how much, how many 
many problems they had. They were just like, oh, thank goodness people like it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Carl talks in his interview about this new phenomenon. He said, to his knowledge, it was the first time they really had this idea of repeat viewers, Mm -hmm. especially with the young people. Mm -hmm. He said that most of the time, you know, you'd have this market, like, you know, say 2 million people and they would spend the money that 2 million people would spend at the box office. But he said, this was the first time where you might have 16 million tickets at the box office for those 2 million viewers, because some people were seeing it three and four times. Mm. It brought in, of course, a lot more money if added to its success. And it just showed you the appeal of this audience. It kind of changed that idea of the popcorn movie, it gave credibility to this type of film that wasn't seen as being as artistic. It wasn't Mm -hmm. seen as being as craftsman-like or Mm -hmm. as skillful. It kind of made it okay to do these suspense movies like Jaws. Just a fun movie. Yeah. So Jaws ultimately grossed more than twice the amount that the second biggest hit of that year, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, brought in. Mm. It was nominated for an Academy Award in the Best Picture category. Didn't win that one, but it did take home three Oscars for Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, and Best Sound. Mm. Steven Spielberg was not nominated. I know. And Shaw was not nominated, although many people thought he should have been. I think he should have been. For his, especially for his performance with that big monologue. Some people speculated it's because it was that popcorn movie, that B movie, that they didn't want to go as so far as to give them the nod for that. But John Williams' score, of course. That seems like a worthy win. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was cool that, have you ever seen, it's in the reruns, those really old Saturday Saturday Night Live episodes where they land had shark? the land shark. Yes, yes. yes. That, of course, was inspired by Jaws, <laughs> yes. which is awesome. Knock on the door. Candy Graham. No, you're that land shark. No, I'm not. <laughs> yes. That was so funny. Now, on the flip side, there were some negative effects as well. They said, I don't know that they had hard data, but based on what they observed and what people said, they said beach attendance was very negatively affected <laughs> by this movie. So. And the, this is kind of sad. They said that it was so effective and so scary that even to this day, sharks and especially great white sharks have been demonized, Mm. that they are feared, they are misunderstood. There are a lot of misconceptions. Little side note, Peter Benchley, who by the way, passed away in 2006 when he was 65 years of age, he came to regret that he had ever written Jaws. Really? Because of the way that sharks came to be almost attacked, Mm. he became, after a time, a naturalist and a conservationist, and he produced films and television programs about the ocean environment because he was so concerned about some of the things that were happening. Oh. Yeah. I don't know that Pete, well, I don't know. I guess you could go back to, like, who are you going to blame? The film really brought it. It wasn't just his book. But, yeah, I can see that. I I give them a healthy respect. They, they, I'm not going to go near them. Well, same. Yeah. Here's what his wife told the Associated Press. He cared very much about sharks. He spent most of his life trying to explain to people that if you are in the ocean, you're in the shark's territory. Mm -hmm. So it behooves you to take precautions. Mm -hmm. So that was one regret. Now, to be fair, he really did start it all. I mean, he he did. You know, it said he started the ball rolling. He started the ball rolling. And because of the success of Jaws, they had the sequel. They had Jaws 2. Then, of course, I think they ended up with a Jaws 3. Then they had other Jaws ripoffs, if you want to call it that. Orca, The Deep, Tentacles, Piranha. 
Anna, lots of things that were kind of inspired Mm -hmm. or seemed to be inspired Mm -hmm. by Jaws started popping up. And then they said this was also one of the first times where they had a lot of merchandising related to the movie. They had t-shirts, posters, toys, lunchboxes. And this was kind of the start of that. And then they said when Star Wars came out two years later, that's when it really exploded. Really took off. Mm -hmm. Yep. So in terms of Steven Spielberg's impact from having directed this movie, of course, this just launched him. Skyrocket. Right. The next thing that he did was Close Encounters. With Richard Dreyfuss. With Richard Dreyfuss. Yep. And I thought this was cool. Carl was asked in that same interview that we've referenced several times. He, he was asked why he thought Steven Spielberg became so, so popular, so acclaimed as a director. And he said, to be a great director, you really need three qualities. He said, you have to have the technical knowledge and ability, the craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. He said, you have to be able to see the big picture. You have mm-hmm. to see what you want, the whole thing end mm-hmm. in mind, and then you know know how to get there. And then he said, you also had to have basically, I don't know how to phrase this, I guess- Diplomacy. Diplomacy is a good Mm -hmm. word. You know, political awareness. How do you get along with all the studio execs? Different personalities. Right. How do you get the cast to do what you need them to do? You know, how do you work with people? And he said that most directors have two of the three. There are very few that have all three. And he said Steven Spielberg had all three, Mm -hmm. still does. And that's why he thinks he's maintained, you know, all this time. And then he added that a lot of directors also get brought down by a scandal. Oh. And that Steven... So far. So far. (laughs) Has not had that happen to him. So before we move into our armchair part, Ashley. Yes. I went down a little rabbit trail. Okay. Do you remember in the podcast where they talked about the the lady in the dunes? Yes. I had to look it up. And the fact that Stephen King's son is the one that found her on the the screen? Yes. Tell me what you found out. Okay. Now, I'm going to say I did not do incredibly in-depth research. So this is a little bit deep dive. I didn't do a deep dive. (laughs) (laughs) It never gets old. But I did a little superficial research, and, and here's what I found. So if you're not familiar with the lady, some magazines call it Lady in the Dunes. Some say Lady of the Dunes. But this was a case where, a very sad case, where this woman, her body was naked and decaying. Her head was almost decapitated. I'm going to have to put a warning on this episode. I, I think you may. Okay. okay. Both of her wrists had been removed. Oh, gosh. And she was discovered dead in July 1974 in a cluster of trees near Race Point Beach in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Oh, this is so sad. Her body was found by a young girl who was about nine years old at the time while she was out walking her dog. The woman was lying face down on a green towel and it said it it made it look as though it was a stage because it was as though she was sunbathing. Uh A blue bandana had been tucked beneath her head, which had been bashed in. And it said there was a pair of Wrangler blue jeans, quote, folded up like a pillow. Mm. It said her hair was reddish brown, was in a ponytail, and she weighed between 140, 150 pounds, would have stood about five foot, six inches tall, or maybe five foot eight, somewhere in there. She was described as being fit. They thought she was probably in her mid to late 20s. And one note that the police made was that her teeth, the the work that had been done, would have been worth about $10,000 worth. Well, because there were gold crowns in there. And they commented that it had been done, that dental work had been done in the New York style, whatever that means. Now, this is also disturbing. At the end of her arms, where her hands should have been, were piles of pine needles. And police believed that her hands had been removed to try to prevent identification. There was some blood 
blood, but they suspected that she had been killed somewhere else days, if not weeks earlier. And again, this retired police chief had a quote where he said she was definitely posed there. She was lying out on a beach towel as if she was sunbathing. Mm. That's a direct quote. Mm So this case has been cold for over 40 years. Mm -hmm. And then what brought it back into the spotlight, as you said, was that Joe Hill, who is the son of Stephen King, and he is an author himself who likes to write a lot of ghost stories. Mm -hmm. He put out this theory in August of 2015. It was in a blog post. And then it it came back to national attention in 2018 because of the podcast Inside Jaws. That's what brought it back into a lot of the spotlight because he highlighted it there. Okay. But anyway, Joe Hill's theory was he had been watching Jaws and at about 54 minutes and two seconds into the film, there's this crowd scene on the 4th of July. It's that sequence where they're looking at the big event and then of course the shark appears Mm -hmm. and he spotted this extra. He sees this fit young looking woman with brunette hair wearing a blue bandana and he said he thought it bore a startling resemblance Mm -hmm. to a composite sketch of that lady. Yeah. And so he wondered, quote, what if the young murder victim no one has ever been able to identify has been seen by hundreds of millions of people in a beloved summer classic and they didn't even know they were looking at her? So in that same post, after he puts out this theory, he does go on to acknowledge lots of problems with his theory. Yeah. He includes some of them. He says, well, she wasn't wearing the same type of Wrangler jeans they found. In the next scene, you see six other women who are wearing a bandana that looks Mm. exactly the same. So okay. he acknowledged this was kind of an far-fetched. Yeah, far-fetched okay. or out there theory is how yeah. he phrased it. But it attracted a lot of curiosity. A lot of people were responding to that. And they made the point. This Jaws production brought in a lot of people. A lot of people drove from everywhere because they wanted to be extras or they wanted to watch the filming. So, you know, the police actually said they were going to check this theory out because maybe. Maybe. The other thing the police said was, you know, anything that brings attention to this, this is a cold case. Yeah. If it'll bring attention, if it might bring new testimony or or get people to think about things that happened and come forward, great, we'll take it. Mm -hmm. And they even put out a, a call for tips. Thought that was fascinating. But in my research, I found out that there is a Massachusetts-based filmmaker who is premiering a new documentary very soon that actually looks into this unsolved murder case. This is a pretty recent thing because in a Cape Cod article written just this past March 20th, it mentioned that they were having screenings of this film at Cape Cinema in Dennis on Friday, April 1st and in the Provincetown Theater on the April 2nd. So it's they've already been screening it somewhere. IMDb does not say that it has been released yet, but it does say coming soon. There's a page for it. Okay. But anyway, this documentary was produced by a man named Frank Durant, and he said that he focused his investigation on the murder of this unidentified woman. And in the article about this, it says, quote, throughout the interview process, the filmmaker said that one of his main focuses was discerning between fact and fiction surrounding the infamous murder. This producer said there has been a lot of misinformation about the crime that has spread over the years and he specifically called out Joe Hill's theory that this victim may have been an extra in the film Jaws. His quote was that the new film disproves the theory. That's too bad. Yeah. So it sounds like she's still unidentified. She's still unidentified and may have nothing to do with Jaws. Mm. Well, I'm sad that it's not a break in the case. Yes, I agree. I agree. 
Armchair Psychologist. Okay. Well, I think we're ready for our Armchair Psychologist segment. All right. Simple questions. Actually, two questions. Okay. First of all, I want to hear if you have any more interesting reactions to the second part of the movie. But I also want to know if you have any other thoughts about why it's been so successful and so long lasting in its impact all these years. Well, I think the reason it has been, we've, we've kind of covered this, but to reiterate the reasons I think it has been so impactful and long lasting. First of all, the music. Mm-hmm. I think the music played a huge role in emotionally investing people in the story. I think the characters. Yes. They were real. You could identify with them. They, you felt like you were in this situation with them. And I think the third thing is it was new and novel. Yes. I mm-hmm. think those three things, and just off the top of my head, there may be more, but those, the script, the Carl Gottlieb mm-hmm. script, the characters, new and novel, and the music. All of that was just this perfect combination to make this film and you can't repeat that you can't be the first ever again yeah so I think that was just that was it to piggyback on what you just said something we haven't mentioned yet that just came to me Carl if you're out there I hope you I hope you understand how much we appreciate you because we've we've certainly very much given you a lot of shout outs but he said something else that I thought was really insightful He, he mentioned that what he thought made this so powerful one of the many things that made this so powerful was that you had these three really strong characters who were out to do something big and heroic and meaningful, but they couldn't do it by themselves. Oh, yes. It was the cooperation. They were all really strong, wonderfully written men, but they had to work together to Mm -hmm. make it happen because none of them were strong enough to do it by themselves. Yeah. When we were watching it, I I told Brian, there's no way that Quint could have done this by himself Mm because early on he says, I'll do it by myself. And you couldn't have. He could not have handled that. That shark was way bigger than everybody thought it was. And it was just so smart of the screenwriters and Spielberg both to to force that to happen because it was so satisfying because you Mm -hmm. had so much hostility or tension, I should say. You had tension between the grizzled, old, primitive man, I think Mm -hmm. was how he was described at one point, and then the young, cocky, academic guy. Mm -hmm. And then you had the everyman. And then you saw how satisfying it was that all of their skill sets were necessary. Mm -hmm. All Mm -hmm. of them were valuable and we needed each other Mm -hmm. to make this happen. They were a little puzzle that fit together really well. So what is your opinion of why it is so successful? We got Carl's. We got mine. Mm. Well, you've named so many points that I already agree with, and obviously so has Carl. So I'm trying to think of something different to add. Mm -hmm. And what occurs to me is the way that they built suspense Mm. by making that shark larger than life. Mm they turned it into an epic battle because it was not just a shark. It wasn't just this animal. It was almost representation. It was, yeah, it was almost mythological or something. Yeah. It was, it was symbolic in some ways. It was huge. It was in some ways you felt like it was evil. It really was a villain or a monster in some ways. And that made you more invested too, because now you are in this battle of good versus evil, life and death, you know, all those things. Mm-hmm. And you desperately want them to win. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, we've said many times now that you now care deeply about these characters. You do. So you not only want them to win, but you also want them to survive. Right. And they were smart. This is terribly sad, but I wrote in my notes, tip it. You know, you just see the stick. They killed, the shark killed a dog and it killed a little kid. And mm-hmm. if you want to gain the audience's sympathy and want this thing to go down, those are two things. Because as soon as that dog was gone, I was like, take it down. Take him down. I, I'm not on this shark side anymore. And then the little boy, mm-hmm. oh, 
Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'm glad you said that because you made me think of something. I was watching, rewatching with my husband, who obviously had seen it before as well, and he made a comment. It was the famous scene where the boy's mother slaps yes. Chief Brody. Yes. Which, by the way, one of the little kind of behind the scenes anecdotes was that she had trouble getting that slap down and she also <laughs> had trouble holding back and faking it. So she was doing full out slaps and she would have to do it again and again and again. And that poor guy. <laughs> I think it was like 17 times. Yeah, it was terrible. But but my husband, Kirk, made the comments. He said, I'm so glad they brought that woman in with that smack because he said, that little boy got killed yeah. and then they switched to this whole other scene and it was almost like it got lost yes. in the impact and the emotional devastation. And he said how smart and powerful it was to bring up that grieving mom and to have her face off with that chief and show how much she held him personally responsible. Although I will say, one of my notes is she should have been slapping the mayor. I agree. Because Brody wanted to shut the beaches down. And the mayor's the one that said no. But did she know that? No, she didn't. Right. Of course she didn't. But I would have been like, oh, this. <laughs> yeah. I would have pointed to the other guy. But I got a cute trivia for you before we keep oh, yeah. going. One of the, the first things I read on IMDb, I won't remember the names of anyone because I read it when I was sleepy. But apparently the lady who played that recently, very recently, four decades later, it said, went into a restaurant where they had the little boy Alex Kitchener sandwich or something. It was like a seafood place. And so she mentions to them, oh, I played the mother of Alex Kitchener. And the man who owned the restaurant came out and it was the kid who played (gasps) Alex Kitchener. And they hadn't seen each other since they made that film. No way. I mean, that's a trivia. I don't know. It's a trivia piece on IMDb. So I'm just repeating what I read. But I thought that was precious. I can't get over that. Yeah. I love that so much. I know. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad you shared that one. If it's not true, don't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Something else that I remember, and I'm going to have to look up whose production company this is, but have you heard of the production company? That's some bad hat, Harry. <laughs> no. You haven't heard of them? No. I have seen some show where I hear that, and it's a little cartoon of a man, and he goes, that's some bad hat, Harry. And that's a, from a line in this movie, because when he's talking to the man, Chief Brody is talking oh, to the older man. I remember and, this now. Yes, and he goes, that's some bad hat, Harry. Yes. And some person named their production company that's some bad hat harry and they've got a little shark fin in the background and it's completely from that line now something else i want to know talk about kind of glossed over like what kirk said that harry is in the water and then when everybody comes out it's almost like harry gets trampled because they pull Mm -hmm. him onto the beach and he's still laying there and i'm thinking is harry okay Mm -hmm. there's a wide shot and he's just kind of laying i don't know what happened to him that's interesting because i remember thinking the same thing i'm like oh are they going to show us how he got trampled. stampede and that's mm-hmm. another death that resulted from mm-hmm. their not but being. But nothing ever happened with yeah. that. So when nothing happened, then I assumed he made it. But We're just going to go with that because that's some bad hat Harry is very, very <laughs> sweet. A couple time stamps for you. Richard Dreyfus does not enter the film until 29 minutes. We wow. don't see him for half an hour. Quint takes the job at an hour seven. It he is, is that- like there are two movies. Yes. It's like the whole setup is a movie yep. and then once those three men get on the ocean, you move into something that's almost like a Hemingway. Yeah. Yeah. Or a Moby Dick. Yeah, or a Melville. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And I love the head snap up. Another one of those famous shots where his he's got that cigarette and his head snaps up. He's, you're going to yes. need a bigger boat. Yes. They said he improvised that. It's funny because one source said it was Steven Spielberg who improvised that, but uh-huh. most sources said it was Roy Scheider. But if you notice, his cigarette is unlit when he says that. And when he backs up into it, he is, uh, the cigarette is lit. Ah, I did not but catch something that. else. Yeah, something else I read said that because the audience 
audience reaction was so uh, loud, they couldn't hear his line. So they added a little bit more of... Steven the, Spielberg had to pump it up because mm-hmm. so he wanted it to be audible. Yep. I saw the same thing. Yep. That it was, was a good line. It I mean, and everybody line. knows it. And I love how he just comes into the frame. There's just these... <laughs> Roy Scheider and these uh, iconic shots are really cool. I'm going to jump in here and go back to something that we've already touched on. When we shared our reactions to the men and that scene where Quint ends up going into the USS Indianapolis mm-hmm. talk, sharing the scars. Not only was it just super adorable the way they they had that interaction, but talking about the moves, the, the intentionality, the guys had been so disconnected. And not only did they have the humor and the banter and they're actually laughing with each other and they're showing their scars and they're connecting, but did you notice that they actually had physical connection? Yes. They, they like put one their put legs their, over. Yes. yes. It's like the, just that the physicality and how important that was to show Mm -hmm. that they had connected at the level where now they're actually like throwing one leg over another. Did you notice how they were wearing the same color? Quint Mm. and Hooper have on the almost exact same color shirt. And I wondered if that was done. You can't do something like this and it not be purposeful. Were they trying to show even though you guys are at two different coming at it from two different angles, you're really the same person? Is that because Scheider is in black. So he stands out against these two. But the two science guys and the the science guy and the guy that's the grizzled naturalist or whatever he was, they're in the same color and their hair is the same. It's Mm. the curly hair. And at one point when they're both fixing the boat, their arms are down and it looks like the same person and they reach their arms up and all of that. And that was a lot of physical stuff they had to do on that boat, by the way. Yes. And every time they would show that shot of the feet right there by the water is they would have to kind of Mm. go around the edge. Mm -mm. (laughs) It was like, that was also suspenseful. Yes, it was. But no, back to your point, I started to say it might be a nod to how you would actually have to to dress if you were on a ship out in the sun and the sea Mm -hmm. and, you know, trying not to absorb the heat. But then why would Roy Scheider be Be in black? black. Because you would not wear that. Well, Ian Malcolm says that black reflects the sun. I don't know if it's true, but that's what Ian says. I thought that was really interesting. I like that. And uh, going back to your speech, I I had a note that it was masterful. And I love the singing to ease the tension. And then we have the attack and we see it before they do because they're beating on yes. the 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 desk which mirrors the beating of the wood it was which beautifully he done. uses again to comic effect in indiana jones and the last crusade do you remember in the scene it's one of my favorite scenes in the library where they're trying to break the floor so they do one two and on the third the librarian looks and like that was real loud everybody who knows <laughs> the film will know what i'm talking about i love that scene love oh it. also there was a shooting star that really happened behind Brian saw it and I looked up in the trivia and if you look it's at timestamp and one hour and 36 minutes and it's in the wide shot too it's a red beam that goes across and they said that was not CGI that was real That is so cool. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because Ian Shaw, Robert's son, was asked in an interview that he did, basically, do you think all the problems with the sharks and, and the shooting hurt the movie? And he ended up basically, I'm paraphrasing, but saying no, he thought it ended up helping because mm-hmm. it it led to things like the changes in the script and the way they added the suspense and not showing the shark, all those things. But he also added because they hung out so much yeah. more together 
particular, it changed the relationships. Mm -hmm. It led to some of the things like the improvisation of the line that we mentioned just a minute Mm -hmm. ago, that he felt like it impacted his dad coming up with the speech, you know, all those things. But that extra time together Mm -hmm. probably did make a difference. It forced them to concentrate more on the character than on the mechanics and the CGI. So Mm -hmm. it changed the trajectory of the film. It made it more, I mean, I think they intended for it to be a character piece, but it really made it a character piece because they couldn't show the shark. Right, right. Yeah, this wasn't a movie about a shark. This was a movie about people on an epic battle to destroy something evil. Yeah. It was about the people. So who are we going to cheers, Ashley? Well, we already cheers Mr. Spielberg. So for this one, and Bruce, of course, why don't we cheers the writers? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. So Carl Gottlieb, Robert Shaw, Peter Benchley, and even who was the other fellow that you mentioned that had a little bit? Howard Sackler. Howard Sackler. Cheers to those fellows. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the Scandal Water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests advertisers or clearly professional psychologists thanks for listening cheers to you fellas oh hi scotty (laughs) (laughs) i think i think scotty's cheersing as well (laughs) that was hysterical i know i'll have to put that in the outtakes (laughs) Uh